Sunday, the 2nd of September, 1666, 1 a.m., London, a baker's shop on Pudding Lane, and a few little insignificant embers floated high and came to rest on a small barrel of tar. The tar started to smolder, and soon the whole barrel was alight. Thomas Farriner, that London baker, rushed over and started to, to hit the barrel with great venom to end the fire as quickly as possible. But as Farriner hit the flames, shards of flaming wood were scattered, and those shards began to burn around him. In spite of his best efforts, before long, London warehouses were ablaze. Surrounding city streets caught fire as wind swept the inferno down the Thames. But in 1666, unknown to the people at the time, that great fire of London brought healing and life as it ended the great plague of London, as the rats and fleas which spread the disease died. Those insignificant embers could have been quickly snuffed out, but in God's sovereignty, they were not and a fire which raised a plague-infested London to the ground ensured that a new London would be raised up. At the start of this year, which feels about as long ago as 1666, we, or rather you, started this series in the book of Acts. And there in that first chapter, we saw tiny embers little sparks of faith in Christ, a people gathered in an upper room, a people whose hearts burned within them as they met the resurrected Christ, and a people who were promised by him that they would bring healing and life to their city, and not just their city, but to the whole world. They would spread the good news of him, Acts 1, 8, to Jerusalem, to Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And when the wind of the Holy Spirit did come, and those little embers burned bright enough such that the city of Jerusalem was alight, Acts 2, thousands in that city, seared with faith. Acts 3, the plague of religious works started to be burnt down, and a gracious church was raised up. Acts 4, timid embers became emboldened flames until Acts 6, onwards religious men who, like the old city as it was, in all its sick religiosity, sought to hit the flames of the gospel in order to extinguish the church. But, just like Thomas Farriner in 1666, the upshot in God's sovereignty was that that merely caused new fires, that the glowing church in Jerusalem was splintered, but splintered such that new churches started up in Judea and in Samaria. For those who sought to smother the gospel were simply a means of spreading the gospel. And those who tried to stamp out Jesus, life-giving Jesus, as we saw last week, became consumed by him. For God will raise his church. No matter how small the spark no matter how infested with, with pride that the ground, no matter how treacherous and strange the times, God will 
raise his church. And as we reach here, the inspiring chapter 9, notice that, that 75% of that Acts 1-8 mission has already been accomplished. Look down there in Acts chapter 9 and verse 28. Saul went in and out among them where? At Jerusalem, preaching boldly. Likewise, look at verse 31. So the church throughout where? All Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Friends, as we stare at the achievement of of verse 31, the kind of crescendo of this first half of the book and the church in great health in Joppa, looking out over the Mediterranean Sea, ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's easy to forget chapter 1. And the fragility of that life-giving gospel flame and those nervous little embers in that upper room. It's easy to forget chapters 7 and 8, the stoning of Stephen and the, the church scattering. It's easy to forget that in God's sovereignty, those little embers took that gospel flame past the walls of Jerusalem in the first century, and ultimately to us here today, those 6,000 miles away from the source of the blaze, those 2,000 years on from the fire's beginning. As a result, friends, it's easy to forget that God always knows what he is doing with his church and what he's accomplishing to ensure it's raising up. He may use pathetic and proud people like Peter. He may use pious and and pitiless people like Paul. He may use seasons of persecution, maybe even seasons of pandemic. But God will raise his church. And for us, as Trinity Church, in, in such an odd season in many ways, Meeting at this church, at that church building, online, offline, new staff, potential merger. In all the uncertainty that that brings, we must not forget that that is what God will do. What wonderful encouragement we find here when we recall God's unstoppable plan for his church. And so God's sovereignty over small starts and strange seasons. Friends, God will raise his church. And yet, to do what? To do what? God will raise his church, certainly his people will be drawn in from everywhere, the world over. God's Acts 1-8 plan will persist, but what is its purpose? God will raise me-centered communities to the ground, and Jesus-centered churches will be raised in their place. But what does God's church do? What is the nature of this unstoppable community? Well, the rest of of Acts 9 tells us. So please, would you stand with me as I read to us Acts chapter 9, and starting at verse 32. Acts 9, starting at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. 
And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and, and, and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Please be seated. God will raise his church. God will raise his church, but to do what? Well, firstly, from this section, I think we ought to see that God will raise his church to be like Christ in life. Indeed, that's my first point this afternoon. God will raise his church to be like Christ in life. One of the first things that struck me about this passage as I sat down to prepare it this week was how much it read like the Gospels. Did you notice that? Indeed, if you change the kind of the, the flat coastal scenery here for some rugged Jerusalem landscape and exchange the name Peter for the name Jesus, you almost feel as if you have rewound to Luke's first book and to Luke's Gospel. Peter, like Jesus, the itinerant preacher, verse 32 here, goes here and there preaching the gospel among them. Indeed, it reads just like Luke 4, 43. Jesus went from place to place saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Peter follows in Jesus' footsteps. He's not on a healing mission. He's on a preaching one. He's not on a social action tour, but on a teaching tour. After all, Acts 6, Peter was, was set aside, if you remember, for prayer and word ministry. And so Peter here goes from the church of Jerusalem to equip the scattered church in Judah. And in this way, Peter is raised up to be like Christ in life. Peter's life imitates Jesus' life. He moves from here to there, verse 32, amongst the hungry for the word, and he teaches them. And friends, that is one reason why God raises up his church he raises up ordinary people like you and I to be like Jesus in life, to go here and there to the future church, to disciple other members of our church who know less about the Word and to feed them with God's Word. Peter, like all of God's church to some measure, is, is raised up to teach the next generation. Some of us may do that as we, we move from pulpit to pulpit as we perform itinerant ministry like Peter. As some of us may do that as we move from place to place like, like missionaries, like Paul. 
But more normally, you and I go from here and there as we faithfully teach different people in our small group or, or different members of our family. But whatever, whatever our here and there is, all of us, if we are part of God's church, have been raised up by him to do that because God will raise his church to be like Christ in life. Yet as we stare here at Peter's work and, and see how much it parallels Christ, we, we cannot avoid the fact that from verse 33 onwards, Peter is not just equipping the saints through the preaching of the word. Yes, I believe that, that Peter is, is primarily doing that, but also, as Peter preaches, Peter prays, and he prays for Christians to be healed miraculously. He prays for the healing of Aeneas, verse 33 there, a paralyzed man in Lydda, and he prays for healing for Tabitha, verse 40, a dead woman in Joppa. And in doing that, again, Peter imitates Christ's life. Indeed, the language employed here by Luke, I, I think, is very purposeful in its similarity to, to Christ's work. We read in verse 34, Peter said to the paralyzed Aeneas, rise up and make your bed. And we cannot help but think of Christ in Luke 5. And Jesus said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. Likewise, as we read here in verse 40 of the dead Tabitha, and Peter saying, Tabitha, rise, and taking her by the hand, we cannot help but picture Christ in Luke 8. They laughed at Jesus, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, Jesus called out, child, arise. Jesus says, then Talitha kum, little girl, rise. Peter here says, Tabitha kum, Tabitha, rise. Well, the church imitates Christ, not just by her preaching, but by her praying, which leads to healing for her people. Let me say that again. The church imitates Christ, not just by her preaching, but by her praying, which leads to healing for her people. But how do we apply that? How do we apply that today? By calling you, members of Trinity Church, to some kind of miraculous, instantaneous healing ministry? What is this crazy, charismatic British guy doing in his first sermon? Well, friends, I think we have to read this very, very carefully in our application. On one hand, you see, we must see the uniqueness of an apostolic ministry. We must note that when the gospel breaks forth, as it does do in Acts, into the world and into new territory, that it is often accompanied by signs and wonders which are very unique. And hence, we must be very wary of people who presume that miraculous healings are the norm and certainly very, very wary of people who dangerously say that a healthy church is a physically healthy church. However, on the other hand, and knowing Trinity Church a little bit, maybe this is the side that you and I are more likely to stray into. On the other hand, we must not, as a church today, discount the supernatural. We must not absorb an educated Western unbelief, an effective deism that says that God has just kind of wound up the world and just let it run, such that we believe that the only miracle 
that God can ever do in this world today is just to bring people to faith. We must not be so concerned about sounding gullible, looking like some kind of wild televangelist, that we do not pray for people in our church to be healed, even healed miraculously. For praying for people to be healed models Christ's life and his desire. As Dane Ortland writes, the word will in the leper's request to Jesus is the Greek word for desire. The leper asks about Jesus' deepest desire, and Jesus reveals his deepest desire by healing him. Likewise, when a group of men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus cannot even wait to ask to help. Before they could even open their mouths to ask, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Jesus simply sees helplessness and pity ignites. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick. Christ's primary care for the spiritual well-being of others never overrides his physical well-being of others. And as a result... His church is to care too. In short, church members are to pray for the physically sick. And they are to move towards the physically sick. For when Peter is 10 miles away in Lydda and he he gets the call from Joppa, verse 38, please come to us without delay. Tabitha is about to die. Peter does not say, I'm sorry, I'm just polishing my sermon for Sunday. Nor does he piously reply, well, it sounds like she's one step closer to heaven. No, no, Peter says, I'll be there. I'll come. I'll get in my car right now. I want to pray for her and for her healing. And why? Because again, the church is to be like Christ. God raises up his church to be like Christ in life and so to have a desire to care for its sick members. Accordingly, I'm so glad that I get to be a part of a church where people take this purpose seriously. A church which is clearly so comprised of of many who have decided to have a career in medicine so that they could use God's normal means to heal people, a church which partners with groups like like Siloam Health that Jim Henderson works for who aim to share the love of Christ by serving those in need with health care, a church which has elders that that meet with the sick and therefore fulfill James 5 and go and, and pray over the sick because God calls the church to be like Christ in life. However, as we gaze again upon the early church and in all its Christ-likeness here in in chapter 9, we must know that it's not merely the likes of Peter in the church who are imitating Christ here. For in verse 36, we meet just just a regular member, a church member named Tabitha. And Tabitha doesn't even speak in the Bible. She doesn't seem to have a powerful sermon like Peter's in Acts 2. She has no powerful prayer like like Peter. But she too is like Christ in life. Well, how is she described? Look with me at verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. The woman is called Tabitha or Dorcas, whether it's Aramaic or it's Greek, it means the same. It means gazelle. That's a very apt name for Tabitha. For evidently, whenever there were practical needs in the church, particularly when it came to making clothes, 
Tabitha would spring into practical action. Tabitha would, would leap forward and, and she'd sign up, as you guys would probably say. That Tabitha man, she's always jumping on it. And again, that is the church. That is the church that, that God raises up and continues to raise up. Indeed, we see that throughout the course of history. The secular world tries to cover this all the time. It often paints Christians as, as uncaring elites. But when we look over the centuries, we see that the Tabithas of history are not Muslims or Jews or Hindus and certainly not atheists, but Christians. For God raises up a church of gazelles, a saved people who are like their Savior, a people who spring towards the needy. And so again, let me encourage you by telling you in these first few weeks here that I have experienced that firsthand. When we started to discuss moving to London, Sharon Rains quickly offered us their, their house to live in. And Bill Hearman asked if we wanted to stay with, with his family. And a number of you asked if we needed a car to borrow and were happy to give yours. And then we arrived in Nashville. Seth Jones came up to us and dropped off some games for our kids who are still waiting for all their toys from London. And Erica Merker organized a welcome to replace the things that we had to leave behind in the UK. Even this week, Isaac Biggs sent me an email simply saying, I wanted to let you know that I'm an electrician. And if anything comes up in your house inspection, I'm here if you need me. That is the attractive church that God is raising up. A church that lives as Christ lived. A church which continues in Christ's work. After all, that is what Luke says, doesn't he, at the start of his book. Acts 1.1, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, i.e. now, this is what Jesus will continue to do and teach through his church. Accordingly, God desires to raise his church to be like Christ in life. Not a church which is overly caught up in external change and change of venue and, and coronavirus and cash flow. Those things are obviously important. And God will sort those things in time. But God desires a church which primarily seeks to be like Christ in life. And praise God, I really see that here. Yet there's a second facet of the church here which is worth underscoring from these verses, and that is that God will raise his church to be like Christ also in death. God will raise his church to be like Christ in life and also death. Picture the scene here in verse 37 onwards. Tabitha is ill. The gazelle starts to slow down. The, the line of death approaches her sewing machine is now silent. She lays down her last few garments and lays on her bed. Her fever gets worse. People are worried. And finally, Tabitha closes her eyes and dies. By the time Peter arrives, the, the scene is like a funeral. As Peter advances, he hears irrepressible weeping. He's shown that the, the, the piles of clothes for the poor in the room in which she now lays dead, the legacy of a woman who was so like her saviour. But in God's sovereignty, this woman's work is not yet done. For Peter prays to God, and verse 40, Tabitha opens her eyes and sits up, and Peter takes her by the hand, and she rises. Now, why God would have Tabitha in his earthly church for a few more years is not explained to us. 
why God would raise up the, the great seamstress, Tabitha, and not the great speaker, Stephen, is unknown. But as we look at the words employed here, it is clear what Luke wants the reader to focus upon. For it is no accident that twice, and here particularly, Peter says, Tabitha anastemi. Tabitha, rise up. Tabitha, literally, be resurrected. Tabitha, be like Christ in death. The picture that his painters for us here resembles Peter on that first resurrection morning. Peter arrives looking for, for a dead person, but ends up seeing one who is raised by the power of God. Tabitha is a picture of the church, for she is like Christ, not merely in life, but also in death. God will raise his church to be like Christ in life and in death. Friends, let me be clear again. This, this event is not the norm. As I've said, it is a model, a model in part of how we are to pray for brothers and sisters who are sick and dying, maybe even those who have just died. But this event does not model to us a presumption that every Christian will miraculously rise again to live a few more years on earth. But this event does model to us that happy certainty that every Christian will miraculously rise again to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. For as God raised Christ from death, so God will raise his church from death. We who believe, who are part of his church, just like Tabitha, will rise to glory. As we reminded ourselves earlier from Psalm 16, you shall not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You shall not see your faithful one see decay. Few in Christ may be brought back miraculously from physical death now, but all in Christ will be brought back from physical death soon. Parents and grandparents who are precious, precious to us as, 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 as Tabitha was to this church, clearly. The elderly church member who encouraged us as much as, as Tabitha encouraged her church. Brothers and sisters who we have wept over as the widows here weep over Tabitha, will rise. For friends, as it was in picture form with Tabitha and Peter, so it will be in reality with your loved one and Christ. If they trusted in Christ's death for their wickedness and Christ's life for their righteousness, Jesus will open their eyes and Jesus will be seen face to face by them. And Jesus shall take them by the hand as Peter does, and Jesus shall call out their name, and Jesus shall say, Arise. Friends, what a joyous reminder. What a precious picture of what happens to those whom we love, who die in the church, who die in Christ. Those who are not only raised to be like Christ in life, but those who are raised to be like Christ in death. And hence, the central purpose of this miracle is the same for us in Nashville as it was for, for them in Joppa. For as people saw this resurrection, the conclusion that they were to reach was not, I really need to get into sowing, for God will raise those who make clothes for the poor. But rather, I really need to get into salvation, for God will raise people who turn and trust in Jesus. For the miracle performed by Peter is a picture of the salvation proclaimed by him. For the believer, it was the sign of what was promised to those in the church. For the unbeliever, it was the sign of what the church offered. 
The upshot of seeing Tabitha once more running to the poor and needy like a gazelle, serving her Savior again, was rejoicing in God's salvation plan. The believers in Joppa see Tabitha and their belief soars. The unbelievers in Joppa see Tabitha and their belief in Christ starts. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. It's exactly the same as verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. The result of these miracles in the church which pictures the salvation of the church was more people being saved. More people coming to the church, more people seeing and worshiping Christ. Accordingly, final point, final purpose of the church, just in these closing minutes, point three, God will raise his church to bring glory to Christ. God will raise his church to bring glory to Christ. Friends, let me ask you a very simple question. Why do you think this church exists. Why do you think this church exists? You know, over the course of the last six months, as I've said goodbye to British family and friends, many of them have gone onto Google to look up our new church. I'm sure all these hits have messed up any tracking that you may have. Justin Myers has got very excited about all the international hits he's received. Nevertheless, what is the first line that comes up when you type in Trinity Church of Nashville into Google? It says, quote, we believe that the purpose of every local church is to glorify God. Friends, what a wonderful statement. Do you and I live as though it is true? In Joppa in verse, in chapter 9, the early church did live as if it was true. The final purpose of the church is not preaching, not healing, not social action, not miracles, not even miracles that pictured the gospel. No, the final purpose of the church was the glory of Christ. We see it in how the unbelievers respond at the end. Unbelievers respond by giving their lives to Christ, so bringing him glory. But we also see it, did you notice in how the believers act in chapter 9? Or did you notice how the church acts here? Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, I heal you. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, Peter, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas, give glory to Christ. He has the power. Likewise, in verse 40, what does Peter do? He could have gathered all the, all the weeping women around him. He could have stood in front of the, the, the swelling crowd and shouted, do not fear, look what I can do. But instead, verse 40, Peter puts them all outside so that he might be hidden. And Peter kneels down in humility to God, and Peter prays, knowing that he has no power in himself. Peter wants a proud disciple. Peter wants a disciple who tried to heal without Jesus and without prayer, Mark 9, 27, has come to see that he is worthy of no glory, but that all the glory belongs to Christ. Peter rejoices that Peter and Lydda and Sharon do not turn to him, but to Christ doesn't rejoice in Joppa that people believe in him, but rather believe in the Lord. For the early church understood that God will raise his church to bring glory to Christ. Friend, what about you? Why do you think the church exists? Are you looking to be raised up in the church 
but only so that you might receive glory? Are you leading and ministering in this church like Peter, but, but only so that people will give you glory? Or sowing and social actioning like Tabitha, so that you get the glory? What might it look like for you not to stop serving, but to keep serving such that the spotlight stays on Christ? Alternatively, are you at the periphery of this church? Because the spotlight is just not on you enough. You're not sure about this church anymore because it doesn't give you as many opportunities to showcase your gifts. It's not speaking enough or or doing enough in areas where you're seen as an expert. It does not praise and and glory in your vocation as much as other churches you've been to in the past. What might it look like for you to use whatever gift you have to serve here and to serve, most importantly, in a way that brings Christ glory? As C.S. Lewis wrote, the work of Beethoven and the work of the cleaner becomes spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up, whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies, but that a mole must dig to the glory of Christ and a cock must crow to the glory of Christ. We are members of one body, but differentiated members each with his own vocation. On paper, we say we believe that the purpose of the church is to glorify God. Do we believe that in our hearts? Shall we be content? We are God-glorifying moles, or only if our church allows us to stand up and sing at the front like the cockerel. We deem Trinity Church a success. If we see, receive as good as teaching as, as Peter, as good social action as Tabitha, seeing that the sick healed like Aeneas, if our music is, is Spotify worthy, if we have our own building, if we reach 250 members, or will we see success as glory to Christ? More people coming to him, growing in him such that Christ's fame is spread in this city. Friends, God will raise his church. He raises it so that we may be like Christ in life. He raises it so that we might be like Christ in death. But above all, God raises his church to bring glory to his son. Let us pray that we might do that as a church. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful promises we find in your word here. We thank you that you will raise your church in your time. We thank you that your church has already risen here on earth. We thank you that the church continues to grow and grow even amid uncertain days. And Father, we thank you that you raised your people to be like Jesus in life. We thank you for how you have transformed us all, transforming us into people who proclaim your word, into people who heal and pray for healing, people who care deeply about the needs for other people here. Father, would you continue to transform us to be more like Peter, more like Tabitha, ultimately more like your son. Well, Father, we thank you most of all for that glorious transformation that shall occur. 
when you shall raise us to be like Christ in death, when you shall be raising us to your side. And so, Father, for the rest of these fleeting earthly days, would you help us to be those who long to give glory to your Son, a church which desires fame for Christ over our own. Would you help us to apply that this week and in the days to come for your glory and for our good. Amen.